Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The U.S. immigration system has been broken for as long as I can remember. But it was Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency that made hardline immigration policy central to the Republican Party. Meanwhile, turmoil in Central America and other countries have sent tens of thousands of asylum seekers northward. Our country's economic system continues to invite immigration while parts of our politics are swinging away from supporting new arrivals. It's both a familiar American paradox and one charged up by Trump's new promise to carry out the biggest domestic deportation operation ever. We talk with Pulitzer Prize winning immigration reporter Caitlin Dickerson about the system and the immigrants caught in it. It's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. No president has, or maybe even could, fix the problems with our modern immigration system. So much of what drives people to come to the United States is only secondarily about domestic American policy. If other countries in the Western Hemisphere and along the Pacific Rim are undergoing political and economic turmoil, the U.S. is a place where more people will try to seek refuge. But we're facing a political future where Donald Trump would make hardline immigration policy a centerpiece of his administration. While Democrats have tried to create incremental improvements on the status quo while largely running from the issue politically. So we decided it was time to catch up with perhaps the most accomplished immigration reporter in the country, The Atlantic's Caitlin Dickerson, who won a 2023 Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on the Trump administration's unprecedented family separation policy, a brutal heightening of the longtime American posture that's known as deterrence. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much. So... I rarely watch television news. It's just not my medium, but KQED's newsroom has various screens. And so I glance up from my desk from time to time and see reporters kind of pose near the border. And I know Republican politicians and legislators really want the border kind of capital T, capital B to be something people are talking about. But is there a crisis there? Like what's actually happening along the border? I'm really glad you asked and even I'm glad with the way that you put your question because I've been covering immigration long enough to remember when monthly numbers of border crossings were not headline news. And if I had tried to get an editor uh, to agree to let me write a story about them, they would have said that was a terrible idea. Caitlin, find something better. But basically what happened during the Trump administration, because immigration was such a centerpiece of 
both how Donald Trump got elected and how he tried to hang on to power and popularity, creating fear about the state of the border, that the country really turned collectively in that direction. Mm. And now we sort of hang on those monthly border numbers as if they tell us a lot. So, you know, last month, more than 240,000 people were encountered at the U.S. border. And so that is a high number. It creates challenges for the country, which I'm sure we'll get into. But fluctuations in border crossings and even numbers as high as that one are in no way unfamiliar to me as a longtime immigration reporter and not in and of themselves indicative of a sort of overwhelming international crisis. Because what is an encounter in that data? So I'm glad you asked because an encounter is a moment when a person comes into contact with a border official without prior authorization to enter the country, without a visa. They might request asylum status. They might try to sneak into the country and be caught. Um, there, are, there are any number of things that they might come up and request from a border official. And a caveat on the number of encounters is, of course, it's it's encounters. It's not people's embedded in that number are repeat attempts to cross the border. And so especially during uh, the time period when Title 42 was in place, that was the Trump administration's COVID era ban on asylum, you had people trying to enter the country 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 mm-hmm. times. And so the encounter data that the country was playing close, paying close attention to was often misleading. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of haunted by the quote-unquote migrant caravans that became a lot of political fuel for the right wing in 2018 and in 2020. I mean, coverage of them totally disappeared after the election. And it doesn't mean that there weren't migrant caravans, that they weren't there (laughs) or moving through Central America. But how do we separate out the propaganda about migrants coming up through Central America and the real and actual problems in our immigration system? Yeah, I think that caravans were scary to people because of the numbers, because of exactly what we're talking about. You know, large groups of migrants from other countries who didn't have prior permission to enter the United States, that sort of inherently was viewed as a threat by some Americans. I think particularly those who really identified with the narratives that Donald Trump was pushing, that, you know, migration is a threat to our national security, to our economics, to our public safety, uh, claims that are not supported by fact, by and large. Again, this is not to dismiss, you know, any concern about our immigration system. There's lots of really valid concern about the state of our immigration system. But, um, I think that it's those arguments about the inherent danger of migrants themselves that made the caravans uh, such a flashpoint for so many Americans. And then, of course, all the attention on the caravans themselves and the news coverage helped the caravans to grow. Caravans are a a long-standing attempt and, and 
manner of migration that's intended to create safety in numbers and sometimes as a political movement to draw attention to what it takes to migrate. But there was so much focus on caravans in 2017 and 2018, so much news coverage that what that did was actually tell more and more people in Central America about the caravans and then they joined and then the caravans grew to kind of unprecedented numbers. Mm. It's really uh, interesting because when I look at that situation, what I want is the best possible policies for those people as they arrive at the border while also understanding that, you know, the communities along the border could be overwhelmed by the number of people um, who are there. What's happening at the national political level to try to provide support for those communities? I mean, President Biden has tried, it seems, to get funding to help places that are really dealing with the the brunt of those impacts? We're really at a stalemate politically on immigration, which has made it difficult for the federal government to provide direct support to communities along the border, as it's also made it difficult to change immigration policy Mm -hmm. nationally and try to improve things, smooth them out. I want to include here that I've spent a lot of time in communities along the southern border where migrants tend to first arrive. And in a lot of those places that have high traffic, the process for receiving migrants is really a well-oiled machine and has been for a long time. So you have large NGOs and charity groups that have longstanding partnerships with the Border Patrol The Border Patrol would, on a daily basis, contact those individuals who run shelters, let them know how many incoming migrants were going to be dropped off on a given day, and Mm -hmm. then arrangements were made to address them. Every once in a while, you would see a really big and unexpected increase in migration, and there wouldn't be shelter capacity to take people in. But for the most part, those groups were so Mm -hmm. well-connected within the community, had so many volunteers that they would scramble, and within a couple of days, the issues were addressed. And so I do think there has been some overwhelm in border communities. But what you're also hearing now from border communities is elected officials who've latched on to the talking points of Donald Trump. You know, these narratives of fear have gained some political popularity in South Texas. As you probably recall, in the 2020 election, Mm -hmm. South Texas moved to the right in really substantial ways. And so some of the alarm bells that you're hearing raised from the overwhelm in South Texas in particular That strikes me as political talking points Mm. that aren't as much supported by what you actually see on the ground when you're there. Let's talk about the political stalemate a little bit. What's what's happening? President Biden tied funding for Ukraine and other military operations to border security measures. Right. And now nothing's happening. Well, it's negotiations are happening. It's actually the, the the far right side of the Republican Party that sort of has required this or demanded this link between the federal budget, Ukraine aid, and a border deal. They say they won't move forward with any kind of negotiations unless the border is involved. And so there's debate right now on what a border deal might look like, but it's important to remember here that 
There are certain priorities your listeners are probably very familiar with that the Democratic Party has been trying to get enacted when it comes to immigration since the Obama administration. Things like legalizing dreamers, things mm-hmm. like legalizing farm workers. And it hasn't happened. You know, it didn't happen during the Trump administration because um, for most of it, Democrats didn't control Congress. And even when they did, the Republican Party kind of w- opposed it to powerfully. And, you know, President Biden took office this year, uh, both, excuse me, in uh, in 2021, both, uh, both parts of Congress controlled by Democrats. And, you know, right away, Democrats came in swinging and, and were, were Yeah, you were hopeful for, back then that there might be meaningful reform. Well, because Democrats had control of both houses of Congress and they were pushing for these long-standing political priorities. What happened was that Republicans said, nope, sorry, we're not going to get on board with those goals. And so Democratic leaders at the time uh, basically communicated to the left wing of the party that now is not the time. There's too much opposition. We'll get to it later. What's happened since then, uh, the entire Republican Party has basically aligned behind Donald Trump's positions on immigration. I think there's been a move to the right across the country when it comes to immigration because mm-hmm. of the response to busing from Texas, things like that, You know, high numbers of border crossings every month. And those Democratic priorities are nowhere to be found in the yeah. current negotiations happening in Congress. Mm-hmm. The, the conversation and the debate has moved very far to the right. Is that surprising to you? I don't know. I mean, very little surprises me when it comes to immigration at this point. And I think, you know, I've gone back and studied the history of immigration to this country and, and debates in Congress going back 100 years. And in times of scarcity, in times of national fear, in times of, um, you know, challenge for the country, immigrants are often scapegoated and immigrants are often blamed. And so this retraction is one we've seen many times in our history. We're talking about immigration policy with The Atlantic's Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Caitlin Dickerson. We'd love to hear from you. How would a change in immigration policy affect you or your loved ones? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email us at forum at kqed.org or find us on any of the social channels. We have questions about the immigration platforms of the presidential candidates. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of immigration policy with the Atlantic's Caitlin Dickerson. Get to some of your calls and comments in this segment. Um, we're hearing very heated rhetoric from Donald Trump, of course, on immigration. That was true, you know, when he came down the escalator. That was true during his presidency. But how is the global migration landscape, like how are those patterns of people moving around different now than, you know, in 2015? Global migration is only increasing. And that's been expected for a long time from people who study climate change, from people who study international uh, relations and, and conflict. For various reasons, migration has gone up. I mean, the pandemic is a big part of that. There were really tight travel restrictions throughout Latin America during the pandemic. And of course, the global economy was impacted and, and poor countries in particular were impacted much more intensely and continue to be impacted by pandemic-related economic downturns. And so there's a lot of pent-up demand and a lot of people who just haven't been able to get their livelihoods back who are on the move. Um, you know, most people coming to the United States right now are coming from Venezuela, a country where the economy is in shambles, where uh, political crackdowns against op opposition are very intense. And so there's lots of and American sanctions are having a major impact on the Venezuelan economy right now. You have people leaving Nicaragua, um, which has become a country where, you know, again, political po protest just does not exist. Um, a country that hasn't been letting journalists or NGOs in for years. And so people are trying to leave. Ecuador is starting to deal with a lot of issues with gangs and drug cartels that have been major issues in Mexico and Guatemala for a long time. You know, that's becoming more and more of a problem in Ecuador. And, you know, Haitian, the list goes on, yeah. Haitians who are leaving Brazil and Chile um, because their economies have struggled so much that uh, Haitian migrants who were once welcome in, you know, when there was lots of construction work and lots of low-skilled labor opportunities available are no longer welcome there, you know, people leaving Afghanistan, et cetera. So, so global migration is on the rise, which means that these issues aren't going away. Yeah. You know, we have a caller who I think wants to discuss some of these conditions. Uh, Perrin Lamb in San Francisco, welcome. Thank you. Um, yes, I... Uh, am baffled by the lack of news overall, and I'm not pointing any fingers at, at KQED here. I'm talking about global media organizations. In terms of South America and Central America, um, how many of these countries are failed states? Um, so we really don't have any information bulwark in our heads when we hear um, propaganda from the right that says uh, murderers, rapists, and whatever are coming in caravans because, really, they're traveling with their families 1,200 miles with the, you know, right. to come up. That seems like a lot of effort from those kind of people. So w why do you think that is? That's yeah. my question. Well, and I think, um, let me uh, also, in addition to the sort of media critique there, Perrin, you know, would you say Caitlin Dickerson 
that you know Honduras is a failed state or, or one of these places uh, are failed states or would you say that that has like a technical definition and it doesn't they don't fit that criteria or like how would you describe that so I appreciate the caller and in your impact input and I think whether or not we use the precise term failed state uh, acknowledging the context and acknowledging what's happening again in terms of public safety, in terms of economics, you know, in, in terms of whether the government is going to protect you and your family if you're not safe. You know, these are things that lead people to migrate and acknowledging those things. I think, in specific terms, actually, I, I would argue it's better to just describe what's happening mm -hmm. than to um, use jargon that some readers may not be familiar with. But I think that context is really important in journalism. And I think it's really important in the political debate. And unfortunately, I think that what has happened is a kind of flattening of the conversation. You know, it's a constant challenge for me as a journalist when I'm writing about immigration policy to include all of this context because it's such a layered issue. Mm -hmm. And I know that lots of politicians, even ones who want to include this nuance, struggle to do it. Of course, some politicians, people running for office intentionally flatten the conversation mm -hmm. because uh, it serves what they're trying to convince voters of. But I, I remember at one point interviewing one of the key Republican aides in Congress on immigration. She was somebody who worked really closely with Paul Ryan for a long time when he was Speaker of the House. And, you know, Paul Ryan was somebody who on immigration was more aligned with a George W. Bush type Kind of the old business view. Republican. Yes, and, and this idea of compassionate conservatism. This aide told me that the shortest Paul Ryan had gotten his uh, speech about immigration down to was three minutes. That was how much time he needed at a minimum in a town hall to get a point, get across his points about immigration. And that's a, that's a lifetime when it comes to politicians. It's a lot so, longer than build the wall. Yes, but I agree with the caller that uh, we would all benefit from more context and more nuance mm. when it comes to this debate. Um, we have another caller in San Francisco, uh, Larissa or Larissa. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Larissa Duganquad. I'm the executive director of the Central American Resource Center here in San Francisco in the Bay Area. We were founded in the 80s by Salvadorian and Central American refugees, and since then have been working to build power to advance our hopes, dreams, and aspirations, mm. and to be active contributors of the society and everywhere that we have fled to. And one of the things that's really frustrating for us is um, the treatment of people who migrate as people without agency. Mm -hmm. um, often it's like migrants, uh, Central Americans, numbers, but there's often, um, you know, lack of Central American voices in the um, reporting and the radio and television. And also there's a lack of um, context of the Central American sociopolitical mm -hmm. drivers of migration that often have been fueled by U.S. foreign aid. Um, we're seeing what's happening in Palestine right now. And as a Nicaraguan who grew up in the war, backed by the U.S., I, I know what's happened. Like 32 years later, here I am in the U.S. I, I came to the United States because of that war. Mm -hmm. And there's like little to no acknowledgement from this country, from politicians. We agree with the, call, with the guests on the scapegoating of people who migrate. 
But, you know, really like the lack of analysis and depth in terms of like how U.S. foreign dollars affect human mobility in the, in the continent, in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, you know, the U.S. during the global compact on migration under the, on the Trump administration, they stepped out of the negotiations. Now Biden is back, but they're using a lot of these things that were negotiated between civil society and governments around the globe as an excuse and really appropriating the language of creating safe, orderly, and regular mm-hmm. migration. When it, That's like a false narrative double speech to the bone, you know? Mm-hmm. The only thing that's happened with the Biden administration is more barriers. He, like, he, he was reluctant to take down Title 42. And, you know, what we're seeing at the border is caused by the U.S. government and its policies. So um, it's very frustrating to our people that, and also when you look at who the makeup of the the migrant community, of people who migrate, who are stranded at the the U.S.-Mexico border by U.S. government design, it's not just Central Americans. So we're Mm -hmm. kind of tired of being the poster child of migration, number Mm -hmm. one. But number two, um, just this like complete um, ignoring of the effects, you know, like I was 16 years old during the wars. Fast forward 30 years, I'm here in the U.S. contributing to this country, contributing mm-hmm. to the Bay Area, contributing to San Francisco through my public work and my service. But, you know, there's no talk about how U.S. was backing a narco president in Honduras as recently as two years ago. Um, there's no conversation about how U.S. is still financing military and, um, you know, training and tactics in the region uh, and that the only solution that they can think to uh, bring our people out of extreme poverty, out of corrupt governments, uh, political persecution, is throwing more money at weapons. Yeah. And what we know is that weaponizing uh, human mobility, monetizing human mobility, only benefits uh, the American people and it causes great human violations. Um, and we saw about the separation of children, you know, in yeah. 2017. Lady, so I, I, I want to get... Um, I, I want to get we our We want guests. to call that out because we're kind of tired of being talked about and we want to uh, speak for ourselves. Yeah. But I appreciate the call and I appreciate the show. Yeah. It's an important issue. Thank you, Ladisa. Uh, that needs to be brought up. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, Caitlin Dixon, there was a lot in that uh, in that call and there's a lot to, to respond to. Um, maybe a couple of different things that we can, we can pull out of it. Um, one, um, just acknowledging that there's a lot of other people um, at the border, aside from Central Americans, two, um, we could we will talk about President Biden's reluctance to take down Title Forty Two uh, in a few minutes, um, and and three, the kind of like deep history um, of American involvement throughout the Americas, and in particular in the wars of uh, Central America. Um, which of those three things do you want to tackle? <laughs> we can go uh, in any of those directions. So the, the the first is the quickest, and, and thank you so much. I appreciate the caller and her input. Yes, in, since President Biden took office, really, uh, the demographics of people arriving at United States borders have changed a lot. So that whereas it had been some, primarily Central Americans who were coming to the United States, um, now other groups have become even larger, though it's always the case that there's a huge amount of diversity among people who are migrating. And every once in a while, I'll do a story about 
someone from a country that people don't hear about as much. And and I receive a lot of surprise and shock and response. And that always surprises me. It's Yes, it is important to, to remind listeners that you'll always see a broad representation globally in migration to the United States. Mm-hmm. That's uh, uh, something that never changes. We've talked about the importance of contextualizing the reasons why people come to the United States. And I think that the reason or one of the reasons that you don't hear as much of that context on a regular basis is the incredible amount of at least imagined pressure that exists in Washington around the border. And Mm. your caller brought up family separations, which is a perfect segue into the way that I wanted to respond to one of her points. You know, I spent two years investigating the Trump, the family separations that occurred during the Trump administration. I would covered them in real time as well as a reporter for The New York Times. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that, you know, President Trump created this overwhelming focus on border numbers that became then an obsession mm-hmm. of Fox News and, and other similar outlets and and a, a real place of concern for many voters. And so what does that mean? That means that on a daily basis during the Trump administration, it, it was like people running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out ways to lower border numbers, which is a really, really oversimplified As we've way. been hearing, obviously, yes. so multi- Causal, et cetera. Um, Multi-causal, you know, the impacts of, of, of lowering border numbers. What does that mean? I mean, sometimes that means real harm to people. And that frenzied hair on fire approach um, or that frenzied hair on fire kind of vibe made people go into panic mode and and try to implement tools to lower border numbers that, that didn't work and that caused a lot of harm. And, and whether it's good or bad, that intense pressure on a monthly basis to lower border numbers, almost irrespective of the reasons that they're high in the first place and irrespective of what impact these attempts might have, that pressure is still in place in the White House. Mm. And and we can see that in the way that the Biden administration has responded to migration, which has, of course, been very disappointing to people, especially people on the left who've been pushing for a very long time for a more humane immigration system. Because when your hair's on fire and you're trying to lower border numbers as mm-hmm. as a politician, what you're going to get is, is not going to be yeah. the most humane and orderly response. Well, and, you know, I, I've talked with immigration activists over the years who obviously are, are very disappointed by President Biden. But I want to talk about Donald Trump's plans, which you recently um, wrote about for the Atlantic's uh, issue, kind of looking forward to um, looking. <laughs> I wouldn't call it looking forward to. I say uh, looking critically at a uh, a possible second uh, term of, of Donald Trump's presidency. Um, let's hear one um, quick cut, which kind of sums up the Donald Trump approach to immigration. Given the unprecedented millions of Biden illegal aliens who are invading our country. It is only common sense that when I'm reelected, we will begin, and we have no choice, the largest deportation operation in American history. You know, you say in your piece in The Atlantic that Donald Trump would like to, quote, sort of finish the job he started, and, and of course, the people around him, Stephen Miller, hardliners of, of various kinds. Um, what do you think he would do? 
Donald Trump has been very frank uh, and clear about what he'll do if reelected in 2024. And there will be no holds barred when it comes to immigration enforcement, rhetorically or in terms of the policies that are put into place. So some of Trump's most controversial policies from his administration are likely to come back, uh, you know, continuing work on the wall, putting back into place this policy known as Title 42, which all but bans the asylum system, and even perhaps family separations. You know, Trump was asked on television during a CNN town hall whether he would bring back family separations. He wouldn't answer the question, and all he said is that family separations, quote unquote, worked, that they were effective. Um, this is not true, and there's a lot of evidence to show that it's not true. But clearly, the former president's response suggests that he is a fan, at least to some degree, of that policy. And then on top of those policies that Donald Trump has said he would like to bring back, there are also ideas he had as president that never came to fruition, and he'd like to try again. So things like eliminating birthright citizenship, which is a goal that Donald Trump articulated even before he was elected president, and that you know efforts were made to try to put into place while he was in the White House the first time. Things like screening would-be migrants for their political views, for Marxist viewpoints, uh, to try to come up with any reason to prevent people from entering the country. Um, using the National Guard and other police forces uh, to join forces with ICE and arrest as many people in the United States without legal status as possible in order to deport them. And of course, you'll recall that this will mean going back to policies where longstanding residents of the United States, those with families, those with no criminal record, um, those who have not otherwise been on the, author uh, on the radar of immigration authorities will be vulnerable to deportation, not just those individuals who have been considered priorities for deportation or who are considered mm -hmm. priorities for deportation now. Um, the list is, is really almost endless. You know, using a naval blockade between the United States and Latin America to mm. fight the drug drug trade, et cetera. Uh, immigration enforcement kind of on every front uh, to the maximum degree is what we could expect if Donald Trump were reelected. We're talking about the future of immigration policy with the Atlantic's Pulitzer Prize winning Caitlin Dickerson. We'd love to hear from you. Phone lines may be full, but you can try forum at kqed.org. How would a change in immigration policy affect you or your loved ones? Or what questions do you have about the uh, ways that the platform, the ways that the presidential candidates um, are would handle immigration? Uh, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with The Atlantic's Caitlin Dickerson about the future of immigration policy here in the United States as we are gearing up, reluctantly or not, for the 2024 election. Um, Caitlin, before we move on to some more questions about the Biden administration's current policies, I I do want to ask you about this piece of your Atlantic article about what Donald Trump would do in office if elected again. I'm just going to read from it. Trump's time in office already represents a resurgence of old, disproven ideas about the inherent threat, physical, cultural, and economic posed by immigrants. And if Trump does return to office, this moment may qualify less as a blip than an era, a period like previous ones when such misconceptions prevailed and laws like the Chinese Exclusion Act and eugenics-based national origins quotas ruled the day. Do you think that Donald Trump has effectively changed the tone and possibilities for for immigration in our era or any kind of reform? Or do you think these were things that he channeled more than caused? I would say that both are true. So you know, misguided ideas about immigrants, that they are necessarily uh, predisposed toward criminality, toward disease, um, toward uh, just being unsafe people. I mean, this has never been factually supported in our country's history, and yet it does exist in our legal history. You can review the congressional record and read testimony from eugenic scientists who push these theories forward. I mean, you can look at American immigration policies from, you know, the 1920s and 30s, for example, where people crossing into the United States from Mexico, even those who had legal visas, were sprayed with pesticides, had to put their clothing into gas chambers to be cleaned because they were assumed to be bringing disease into the United States. I mean, these things were never justifiable based on facts, and yet they're a very, very uh, consistent part of American history. And so even though in, in 1965, you know, the United States passed an immigration policy that was meant to um, modernize the country's approach to immigration, you know, elim- eliminate race-based quotas and, and eliminate racism from the American immigration system, the two are inextricably linked. I mean, by then, these ideas had kind of been embedded into the American psyche. This is something that mm. I've written about and something that continues to resonate today. However, I also think that Donald Trump very effectively, as we've discussed, flattened the debate about immigration and has convinced many Americans of, of additional ideas about immigrants that aren't true. Um, one idea that's very commonly held now is this idea that seeking asylum in the United States is illegal. I mean, it's very simple to go online and look up the American asylum laws and see that 
One is legally entitled to request asylum status in the United States, regardless of where in the country they are or how they entered. And yet most Americans don't realize this is true because this Republican talking point has been so effective. A part of that, too, I think, is um, the the Democratic Party as well as, you know, the center right and, and Republicans who don't agree with Donald Trump's approach to immigration. You know, th these groups have not effectively countered this inaccurate messaging as it's spread across the country. Mm. Let's um, bring in another caller here. Let's go to uh, Ben in Forestville. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'd like to, I guess, maybe have a comment. It seems like we have a social and financial responsibility to many of these migrants um, because it seems like they're fleeing um, problems that are like narco-violence problems that are a direct result of America's insatiable appetite for drugs. And I think if you were to take away Americans using drugs, you might potentially solve this problem. So kind of in, on that vein, I, I just really, truly feel that we mm. owe these people um, a lot because yeah. the reason they're escaping is kind of ball, that falls on our shoulders. Yeah. And I'm happy to take any comments mm. off the air. Appreciate that perspective, Ben. Caitlin? That link is is a really important one to point out, and and I think it's one that a lot of Americans who kind of understand this history and context agree with. I'll just say that it's it's not part of the current political debate at all. Um, we've been talking a lot about this this morning that, you know, immigration policy is kind of made and debated in a vacuum. And so, you know, one of the challenges that I have as a journalist is, is helping to educate people about those issues. But it, it's, it's, you know, you're sort of directly challenged by, I think, elected officials, people running for office who just want to capitalize on the fear that they can stoke by talking about the threat of migration and who, whose goals it does not serve to talk about the links to drug use in the United States, you know, American intervention abroad that the guest was describing. Yeah. yeah. Um, listener Ivy writes, can you address new immigration laws, or I'll just add sort of policies from the Biden administration that went into effect after Title 42? Could you remind us what these new laws are and if they're being enforced and having any effect? So we don't have new immigration laws. Um, we haven't had new immigration laws in the United States since 1996. What happened was that a pandemic era policy known as Title 42, which was effectively a COVID-based ban on asylum, went away. And the country went back to processing migrants the way that it had before under, under Title 8, which affords certain people access to the asylum system. What additional things that have changed under President Biden is that the White House has tried to come up with ways that are more efficient 
at processing people who want to request access to the United States and that allow them to do so without having to present themselves at the United States border, um, ideally without having to hire a coyote to smuggle them to the United States border, which can put people in really dangerous and sometimes even deadly situations. So there are expanded programs under the Biden administration that allow people to apply for asylum from their home countries, as well as for people to apply for asylum if they're in Mexico. And basically what you do is you use an app, you request an appointment, and then ideally you go to a border crossing when your appointment time comes up, you make your claim, and if accepted, you'll be allowed into the United States to begin the formal process of requesting asylum, which takes much longer. It can take months or years. So those are some things that have changed under the Biden administration. There are issues with them. I should point out it can take months to get these appointments. There are lots of glitches with the system, as is often the case with new government technology. So they are imperfect but those are some changes that we've seen. So a couple of listeners seem to, well, I'll just read the comments and we'll discuss. Bill writes, um, heck yes, it's a crisis. There's about 500 million people within walking distance of the border who could have better lives by coming to the U.S. How many are we willing to allow in? Malcolm uh, writes in to say something similar, a little, a little softer. You know, there seems to be an unwillingness to discuss what is an appropriate number of migrants to admit into the U.S. Can your guests um, address this? I don't think there's a, a necessarily an unwilling to discuss it among people like us. Maybe in the political world, having to craft a policy that would say this many people might might be difficult and would open politicians up to criticism. Um, how do you think about this broader question of what is a quote unquote like correct or right amount of people? who should come to the United States as migrants, as, you know, as immigrants, as workers, as whatever this, however that could be designed? Sure. It's a great question. So, and, and there is very little kind of open debate about, if not a number, you know, some set of criteria, you know, how we should set up our immigration policy as a country. And I'll just say that I think part of the reason that debate is missing is that historically it's been based on so many different, widely different considerations. So you could create an immigration policy that's entirely based on economic need. If we were to do that in the United States, I would argue that visas should exist for the massive amount of low-skilled labor that is currently being performed by undocumented immigrants. You know, many Americans don't realize that it's not as if someone coming to the United States to work in landscaping or to become a nanny or a home health, health aide or a food delivery service worker, um, individuals who many Americans rely on to make their lives uh, more convenient, more comfortable, you know, to make their homes look more beautiful. There are not visas to do that type of work. We don't have that type of visa in our immigration system, even though our economy relies on it. And so to sort of make the system honest, you'd have to include those sorts of visas if you were going to make an immigration system based on economics. There's also considerations about humanitarian responsibility. You know, so should we uh, distribute visas as a country based on who we believe we have a responsibility to help and provide protection for? And should 
that be based on places where the United States intervention has created circumstances that foment migration? You know, that's an important question. Um, for other people, you know, family reunification is most important. That's what our current immigration system has been based on since 1965. Um, it's helped lots of families bring relatives come to the United States, but it hasn't addressed these economic holes in the system. Um, you know, for some people, language might be important. You know, education. There are so many different ways to look at immigration policy, and for some Americans, it's strictly a matter of of law enforcement. You know, there, there some Americans would not like any new immigrants to come to the United States. So I think that. Um, it's a real challenge when it comes to debating immigration policy is that a lot of times I notice Americans kind of talking past each other, not just Americans, anybody involved in this debate, talking past each other because some think that um, family reunification is most important, others think economics is most important, others think law enforcement is most important. And I think we have to reckon with that in a holistic way in order to move forward uh, and successfully is, is my view at least. Yeah. Um, let's, we've got a few um, questions about this. So let's bring in uh, TJ in Santa Clara. Welcome, TJ. Hi, thanks. Um, so my question relates to the political theater aspect of this, or at least my belief that there is a possibility of that. We've seen Abbott engage in some theatrics with shifting people to other states. And I just read about this uh, once more immigrant caravan, migrant caravan with like 15,000 people headed to our border from someplace south of our border. And, you know, any army marches on its stomach. So I'm wondering uh, if the sources of funding for this migrant caravan, if anyone's looked at it and seen whether it's uh, the Koch brothers and those sorts, because this is an immigration that the Republicans want to run on. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thanks, TJ. Kind of re representative of uh, several questions that we've gotten about this, but how how does this work? Um, and in particular, questioning whether there's sources of funding of it that are that are not publicly known. You know, there are always questions when large caravans emerge about who's funding them. And I had, during the Trump administration, government officials tell me that they thought George Soros was funding caravans. And I've heard concerns from the left that the Koch brothers are funding the caravans. You know, I don't know the answer, and I, I won't pretend to know exactly um, where funding may exist for caravans, but I do know from really good reporting that happened on caravans during 2017 and 2018 that rumors like people in the caravans being handed cash in order to join them were not supported by the facts on the ground. Uh, I think more than anything, what contributed to those caravans growing in size was the media attention that I talked about earlier. You know, Donald Trump latched onto caravans as a way to fear monger, but as a result, you had a bunch of international news crews show up and start filming caravans, and then local media latch on and cover the caravans in, on the radio and on TV regionally. And so more people knew about and decided to join on to the caravans. Um, 
I think it's sort of backfired in that way. It, you know, caravans have existed for a very, very, very long time. I talked about safety and numbers earlier. I mean, migrating on foot to the United States is no small risk. Uh, you know, the, the the risk of being kidnapped, the race, risk of being um, attacked and robbed, uh, you know, sexual violence, um, murder, all these things happen en route to the United States. And so people are attracted to the idea of safety and numbers. And, you know, there are lots of roadblocks that people are reaching on the way as they try to migrate to the United States right now. And so you have large groups of migrants kind of marooned in different parts of Latin America. And so the fact that they've come together maybe to make a political statement about immigration policies that are blocking them from making it to the United States doesn't really surprise me all that much. Mm. Um, but perhaps there's more to uncover there that I, I just don't know about at this time. So, you know, as we come to the end here um, and we think about what feels like the intractability of these problems, you know, we've got Bill on Discord who writes in to say, you know, had John Boehner allowed the House to vote on the bipartisan Senate bill during the Obama presidency, that bill would have become law. How might the immigration system look today had that occurred? I also think about, you know, the amnesty of 1986 and how it was supposed to be, you know, just one piece of a broader reform. You know, yeah, there's uh, m many other like moments in time where it seemed like things could change. Um, reflecting on those, like how do you see us kind of fixing what feels like pretty deeply broken system right now? You know, I think that one of the results of John Boehner not allowing a floor vote on that bipartisan immigration bill is just that the sort of standoff between Republicans and Democrats then, since then seems to have increased in oppositional tension. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if the more time passes, the less anyone wants to come to the table and debate. You know, the more each side has retreated to demands that are even higher than they were during previous moments when negotiations were taking place. And so it's a very unhealthy and I would mm. say unproductive debate. And, and uh, you know, the, the best evidence of that is uh, members of the Republican Party recently holding hostage funding for Ukraine and even the entire federal budget to make demands of Democrats that Democrats view as just completely off the table, you know, mm -hmm. gutting the asylum system that is a priority for mm -hmm. a lot of the Democratic Party. But, you know, there's a desperation that I think is reflected in that approach, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. we are just so far apart politically as a country that if you really care about immigration, you have to go to these extreme lengths, um, you know, right or left to get mm -hmm. your policies put into mm -hmm. place. Last comment. Susan writes, my father, grandmother, and two uncles immigrated from Russian-held Ukraine to Chicago in 1921 to join my grandfather. Along with a wave of immigrants from Eastern Europe, Americans were enraged. My parents raised three children, all of us highly educated and contributed to the betterment of this country. We've been talking about immigration policy with The Atlantic's Caitlin Dickerson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. As always, you can read her work in The Atlantic, her Pulitzer Prize winning feature, stuff on the future of the Trump administration. It's all great. 
Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.